episode of the dan cable presents podcast thank you for tuning in once again if uh this is your first time checking out this podcast thank you for checking out the show you can find fresh episodes coming at you every friday and if you want to help support the podcast you can uh do so by clicking subscribe on itunes and clicking write a review and giving the podcast five stars there and uh, that will help propel the podcast into the tops of the iTunes charts. And uh, that will help just get more visibility uh, on a national and international level and more exposure for the music and the art and the uh, stories shared on this podcast. So uh, if you have a few extra minutes, minutes, it's a, it's a free way to help. And uh, yeah, it doesn't take long. I appreciate everybody that's already taken the time to do so, and uh, also uh, super stoked on the people that are just tuning into this thing regularly, whether you're leaving the review or not. Uh, thank you for checking out the show. You can also check out the Dan Cable Presents YouTube channel, which features in-studio performances and live show performances, things of that nature. And uh, you can click subscribe there, and you also know when uh, new videos hit the YouTube channel and uh, and whatnot. We've got episode 173 is coming at you. Neil Matson is on the program today, or whenever you're listening to this. It could be the evening. Um, it could be any time. It could be morning. Good morning. It could be afternoon, good afternoon, could be the evening, good evening, or good night, good night, maybe you're going to fall asleep to this, I don't know what you're going to do. Anyway, the point is, Neil Madsen's on the show this week, and uh, super stoked to share the chat that I had with him. Something I'm doing for August is um, I'm doing all jazz-focused episodes this month, or at least that's the goal, that's the plan. I think that's what's happening, and this is the the episode to kick it off, and one of the reasons I've chosen August to do this is that the Montevilla Jazz Festival is, uh, is going down on August 17th and 18th here in the, the Montevilla neighborhood in, in uh, southeast Portland. Got a bunch of killer musicians going to be playing, and uh, so... Yeah, the next couple of weeks are going to be some episodes with some of the organizers, and we're going to talk about how the festival came together and, and just kind of dive into the jazz world. I am uh, I'm a fan. I'll tell you what. I like jazz. And uh, the deeper I there, the older I get, the, uh, the deeper I kind of dig into it. And uh, it's I think it's become some of the most entertaining music for me to see being played live. And um, I just always want to know more about it because it's so it's so outside of my wheelhouse, I feel like. And um, I'm just always amazed and, and interested. Uh, 
by the jazz musicians because they just all seem like they really uh, have it together musically and um, they put so much uh, effort into how much they listen, I think, because there's so much improv going on during tunes and whatnot. But yeah, the jazz thing is is very cool and i'm i'm stoked to just dive into it this month with with some different folks and and find out what kind of got them into it and uh so i'm gonna have a couple of the organizers on of this montevilla jazz festival leading up to the festival including this week with neil madsen um we also dove into a little bit of neil's music history which is great and we talked about um his uh his montevilla guitar studio which is um where he teaches lessons and and owns that that business so we talked about that a little bit and how he how he got involved with all of this and uh just a a really cool chat and it was especially cool for me because neil has become a friend of mine over the last year through playing ice hockey together he's a part of the uh the portland pinecones crew that you may hear about here and there through this podcast. And, uh, yeah, I've been playing hockey with Neil for about a year, and I love playing hockey with the dude. He's so he's such a nice person and uh, so much fun to play with. And uh, it was just really fun to get to hear about his, uh, his passion for music and where that comes from and, and just how he kind of got involved with it all because it's not something that, that he and I – um, have talked in depthly about at all. I just know that he's a musician and he's got this uh, this guitar school, this this lesson house that uh, also houses other teachers now. So you know he's trucking along on all these things, and then he's also uh, a big part of uh, organizing this festival, this Montevilla Jazz Festival. So um, yeah, we're gonna get in into the thing, and also stoked. I'm gonna have. Another Portland Pinecone on this month as well. I'm going to have my buddy Chris Frank from the Frank Irwin Quintet. We're going to do an episode with him as well, revolving around the release of his record. And that is also in the jazz world, fitting, fitting the August theme of, of, uh, of all jazz. So that is to come as well. And uh, I appreciate the, the support for this thing. This is a... Uh, this is a very cool weekend ahead of me, and I'm and I'm kind of already in the midst of it, recording this this intro. I've already done day one of uh, of Pickathon Music Festival, and and I've had some really great interviews today. Really grateful for that opportunity to to get to interview some some killer bands today. I talked with Soft Kill and Gold Star and both Awesome Hangs. And I just can't wait for this the rest of this weekend to unfold. There's going to be so much music. I saw Phil Leash tonight from the Grateful Dead. That was that was fucking cool. Um, yeah, just so much, so much cool music ahead. It has been a, it's been a good few weeks. I'll tell you with the Rad Trad episode, and then last week having the Dead Horses. I had a birthday last week. I think I appreciate all the birthday love coming through. Thirty four. 34 god damn um yeah man i'm just trying to uh somebody asked me they challenged me to write down 34 things that i want to 
do be or or have kind of happen in this in this year and and i kind of did my own version of of just kind of uh recording it recording a voice memo of it and some of it came out and some of it didn't but uh it was a good exercise for me um i know i, I really want to just kind of keep taking these things to the next level and and really leaning into the shit that i really want to do and uh that means that this this is definitely going to keep happening i love doing this podcast and uh can't believe that it's you know 173 episodes I feel like 200 is really just going to creep up on me and uh hopefully after uh having a blast here at Pickathon this this coming weekend here I will uh I will have the opportunity to start kind of planning this episode 200 and uh the things that I want to do revolving around that. So uh things to come, things to come. I'm going to put all the links in the episode notes so you can follow Neil Neil Madsen, who's on the show with us today, and uh, so that you can check out uh, the links to his guitar studio if you're interested in lessons or if you just want to learn more about what Neil's doing over there. And I will also obviously put the link for the Montevilla Jazz Festival so you can get ticket information. There's Saturday and Sunday tickets, or you can just do one day. There's uh, a lot of options they have uh, provided this year to uh, hopefully bring as many people out as possible so all of that will be there and uh as well as the links to following everything dan cable presents uh at dan cable presents on instagram is the uh is the place though dan cable presents.com exists as well that's the central location for everything and the newest episode is always always there and whatnot but uh keep up with me on the on the old instagram that's where i'm usually posting shows going on locally here in portland or uh or otherwise and uh, yeah thanks so much to neil for uh getting on the mics with me and 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 uh just talking to me about where where all this all this music comes from and whatnot and uh we're gonna do the thing uh as far as oh through these episodes um the ones that i do with some of the organizers I am going to uh, I'm going to share a couple jams of artists that are performing at the festival, and uh, we're going to kick it off with a legend, a Portland legend, um, and 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 other places as well. And we Neil Neil provides some of the history about Mel Brown in the episode, so we'll get into that. But uh, it's a legendary fella, and he's playing a couple times at this uh, at this festival, and uh, we're going to kick it off. With a, a song off of uh, off of this 16th anniversary show, Volume Two, uh, more today than yesterday, is the official title of the record. This is the Mel Brown B3 Organ Group, and this is a song called "Spooky," a live recording. Let's get into it.
you ready to jump into this thing, Neil? Yes, sir. You want to get get fired up on it? Yep. Um, cool, man. I'm stoked to uh, you know dive into your to your music history a little bit, but uh, you know we're also here to talk about the Montevilla Jazz Festival that's going on mm-hmm. here in the middle of August. It's, is it the the 16th and 17th? Or it will be the 17th and the 18th, um, with a launch party on the 15th, and uh, at Blank Slate in Montevilla over on Gleason, um, and yeah, two days, 12 concerts uh, on the main stage, 10 10 student youth age groups like high school and college age kids. Okay, on the student stage. Um, it's all within, with within inside the Portland Metro Arts building, and uh, this, this performances are staggered, so you can see every single performance um, if you if you care to. Nothing's happening simultaneous, so main stage, student stage, main stage, nice back and forth. Well, I definitely want to get into like your involvement with the festival and like what what that's all about, but. I'd like to definitely like kind of maybe start at the beginning to like find out like how it leads up to to you getting involved in uh, this Portland music scene. Mm-hmm. Um, when do you start playing music? Um, well, I, I I got serious on guitar after high school, but I started playing music as a kid: piano lessons, trumpet lessons, band, guitar as a teenager. And then after high school, I got serious into jazz and and got serious about playing jazz and doing jazz guitar. So you you mentioned, you know, playing piano early on, taking those lessons. Was that all um, encouraged by by the family? Like, was it was it a musical family that you came from? Yeah, my dad was a musician. He plays clarinet. Um and has played it his whole life and uh, was in uh, like the uh, is it the seventh army symphony after college so he was musical played the guitar sang us songs um we listened to vinyl growing up uh, we listened to shows broadway stuff we listened to jazz count basie we listened to michael jack you know everything and we had it on record neil diamond everything was on records big cradle with all these records i'd flip through and check them all out kind of like be kind of mesmerized by the covers um you know so yeah yeah, totally a, a musical environment and older siblings were involved in dance and music and uh but i i didn't get really serious about it until after high school and and then I just kind of was like this is cool I want to you know I got into jazz and I kind of started learning and taking some lessons and then I got really serious and then I figured out that I could figure out a way to try to go to school for it that happened I uh, went to Wayne State which is in downtown Detroit um, and spent five years there and then moved out to Portland um, did so your dad like a career musician or was it always uh, like a, a labor of love kind of thing for him? So he he was uh, he he was a he is well when he was working um, he was a um, 
English teacher at Michigan State University. Okay. And so, um, but the Seventh Army Symphony was a professional outfit, but it wasn't like his profession. Yeah. You know, it was like when you're in the army and you're in the band. Um, so a lot of professional musicians come out of that organization. They're sort of a. Um, they were actually the history was they were like a lot of the symphonies in Europe were decimated by the war and in the 50s in late 40s and 50s that that particular symphony was was fulfilling the you know concert needs of you know European cities and uh, in Europe after the war and but he was in it later in the early 60s um, and if I'm getting all that right, if he's listening to this, he'd be like, <laughs> you just got all that wrong. <laughs> but, it's your tale. Of the, okay, well. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, so, definitely. Yeah, I was just kind of curious because, um, you know, you've, you've followed through with the music throughout your life, and I was just wondering if, if seeing him do that kind of stuff made it that seem like a tangible thing to you or something that people did with their lives and not just as a hobby or or were there other musicians that you were around that you saw them pursuing music as as a career um yeah uh, a good friend of my family or my older brother's best friend is a jazz trumpeter his name is brad good and so that's a i think that's um, someone who I saw play in clubs in Chicago when I was a teenager because of, you know, hanging out with my older siblings, my sister and my brother who were close with him. And so he, he actually, uh, helped when I showed some interest in jazz as like a 18 year old. Um, he sort of was like, okay, well check out these records. And, um, and then, yeah, like, you know, my older brother was more of an active musician, like kind of recording some stuff, but, but he's also a, a writer. Um, and, you know, he kind of, you know, kind of showed me some things on the guitar as a youngster, but also encouraged me at, when it came time to kind of decide to kind of dig in yeah he was like you should just dig into what you want to dig into yeah you had some like encouraging people around you so like some why not people instead of like i don't know you should really think about getting a (laughs) yeah solid education (laughs) yeah and then and then at the time that i went to uh, get my jazz studies degree i was 24 when i started so it was like i've always been kind of late starting on things or late bloomer and in different regards and that you know, going to college at 25, getting done right before I turned 30. You know, that's not what everybody does. Yeah. And you talked maybe around like 18 it was that you started getting really interested in the jazz? Yeah. I think I was really into classic rock when I was in high school and middle school. So as far as the, the jazz thing, was it... Did did you get really interested in listening to the music or did you just were you more stoked about just the possibilities of playing it oh yeah i mean just um exposed to it through like family like you you asked about yeah through brad um seeing it live i mean there's nothing i think if you see jazz live it can change your life in regards to whether or not you're gonna start to get into it yeah um 
if you hear it, you know, wherever you might hear it in the background or on the radio when you're flipping through, um, you know, like if you see what the artists are, the focus, the um, interaction, you see it live. That that's that's the test. If you if you don't like that, then you're probably never going to like jazz. But for a lot of people to get get and see the artists in action is what really could be the thing. Ah, dude, that's that's a. I'm a we might get into it. We might get into the, some of the, the parallels of hockey, but it's a true <laughs> statement of uh, you know yeah. live sports of like if you go see a live hockey game, even if you weren't a fan. You might walk out of that place a, a yeah. big hockey fan. And hockey's an acquired taste too, unless you're, you know, just immersed in it. You know. Yeah. Because <laughs> I know I, you know, there's few of us. Yeah, it's not. It's not a super, especially up here, in the Pacific Northwest or West Coast in general. You don't. You don't stumble upon hockey fans all of the time. Um, and jazz is an acquired taste. Um, I think it's the experience is huge, and um, and we've had people at the Montevilla Jazz Festival who are adamantly they're involved because they're involved in the community. Over the years, we've had some people be involved who are like, you know, I I could care less. I don't really I don't really care too much about jazz, but I love this event and the community vibe. I love what we're doing, the work, supporting then, people. Yeah, yeah, and then they they see something. They happen to be in the room. And they go, whoa, okay, I think I'm starting to like this or something. We've seen these, like, converts. Um, that was – I'm thinking of one person in particular. Um, and 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 for me, seeing people kind of go, no, I'm not into it, and then sort of warm up to it or even turn, in, you know, into, you know, budding jazz fans is really – fascinating because like okay that's, yeah then is that what it takes because if we're just asked do you like jazz and it's like yes or no it's like it, it's more of a process of educating people and exposure yeah i think i mean i don't know i'm uh i feel like you have to be really open if you're not uh, if you're a new listener mm. you have to be like really open to like sitting with this thing and realizing that you might not like understand everything that's going on but I do think that there's very like there is something really undeniable about seeing it live because I think for the most part, unless uh, unless a band is going like way out into something people don't understand, I think it's very clear that all of the musicians are really holding it down. Like you mm -hmm. can tell that they're talented, yeah. you know. And I don't know. I think it's probably probably the last six or seven years that I've kind of gotten bigger into jazz like before that yeah up until i was like 26 i probably didn't listen to too much jazz and uh yeah just a couple friends my cousin specifically who got really heavy into playing jazz he's a yeah. he's a drummer and and kind of had that thing and of of having jazz change his life yeah that was a good one yeah you let that go on the microphone neil you just give it a good belch so we're gonna we're gonna put that at the top we're gonna put that throughout throughout the episode actually i'm going to sample Dear it Lord. uh but yeah my cousin just kind of had that moment where like jazz changed his life and then he started showing me stuff and then i i started kind of seeing it live and and kind of had that that same experience but i think my infatuation of it because i still now that i love it i still don't understand all the time what's happening i like i'm starting to 
understand the different like subgenres of it and whatnot. But uh, I think that I'm just infatuated by the people that play jazz because it does seem like once you get into that, maybe it's hard to lean back into things that are more structured. Mm -hmm. Is that, was that true for yourself? Like once you got into it, there was kind of no turning back. Yeah. Um, my teacher in Detroit has this great story about, um, so his name was Rob. He played vibraphones. I took lessons from him. I'm a guitarist. It was just music lessons. It wasn't like he was showing me what to do on the guitar. I had to figure it out for myself. But, you know, like the listening ears change over time. And so he had the story about he was like 15 and he had this tape and he like put it in and listened to it. And it was just like, he was like, what the, what is this? this is like noise. Like I can't even comprehend what's going on. And like, I'm thinking, Oh, it must've been like Cecil Taylor or something or net something super free and out. And then he's like, you know, and so he just like threw it in the corner and then like five years later or something, you know, it's like for the tape and puts it in. Um, Cause it's like not labeled, you know, it's like a, somebody recorded a tape off a record and he puts it in and he realizes it's just like Charlie Parker. And so like his ears were like not hip to that. It was noise to him at that age. And then he comes around later and has developed, you know, his his ears to where he can hear it. And I think that that's, that's a challenge for jazz is because you got to have like an entry point musically and be like, yeah, I, I like those. You can't listen to something you don't like the sound of. Right. And you got and and good music should sound good. Um, and you got to have an entry point and, and then you got to see where it takes you. And I, I think that's, you know, one of the problems with jazz is, <clears throat> are we getting into the problems with jazz now? No, there's no problem. No, <laughs> I just, I've, I'm about, I brought it up just talking about it in general because I'm just, but the, the feeling is like snobbery around it where it's like, Hmm, we know, you know, this, I believe what I just played is super hip and course you don't understand like that's to me that's personally i'm just like if your music isn't reaching people then you know it doesn't matter how smart you are about it and so i think that's that's one of the problems that jazz has is that it it can be sophisticated it can be super out but like let's figure out not it doesn't have to connect with everybody yeah but it, it it's not a contest <laughs> well i mean and and i guess this this leads into you know just talking about the festival a little bit but um is that why it's also important to kind of bring the jazz to the streets too just because a lot of times i feel like jazz i i've even heard musicians talk about i don't like playing jazz venues because there's just like a stuffiness to like a lot of them too they're just i don't know yeah. they seem to be yeah you know these these tucked away little places and uh yeah, is that I don't know. Is that I think so. Do you think uh, that kills like some of the accessibility and and yeah. that's a reason that it's awesome to be able to bring this festival to the streets so more people can just even see jazz live? Because I yeah, I, that's a great point. Um, I don't know. I uh, it should be um, raw and real and um, it you know unapologetic. And I think that's some of what we try to program. It's all original. Um, yeah, I'd say like 99% because, you know, occasionally somebody plays a standard by accident, 
Yeah. Or, and, uh, you know, so what were you going to say? Oh, I was, I mean, I think one of my like other part, like favorite parts of watching people do covers within jazz is that you can't always like, especially if somebody does a cover of a pop song in a jazz format, this is like a, a lot of times it can be very difficult to even identify that it is a cover unless you know that song really well because it's so like yeah. broken down. Sometimes that's purposeful, like to, yeah, I love to that. To kind of like obscure the 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 you know the cover, um, but yeah, I th- I think that's a great point. It, it shouldn't be like kind of too neat and too clean. Um, and our festival is. Uh, hopefully very accessible to all, you know, ticket price wise, um, location wise, you're not taking the max. So if you live out in East Portland or Southeast, you're not having to go downtown. It's out here yeah, where the people are. For sure. I don't know. And, uh, and that's, that's part of what we're trying to do. And, and then the music, I think it's, we're trying to program. Well, we talk about it being artist centered. So it's like, you're a jazz artist. You're doing something you really care about. I'm saying hypothetically, like this jazz artists doing something, doing their music, what they care about. Here's the stage for that. Um, it's not dictated to them what they're going to do on the stage other than like be yourself, do your thing. Um, we're not doing um, like standards. You know, we're not booking like sort of... Um, uh, versions of old styles we're doing like what's new what's happening what are you doing you're the you're the now you're the artist of the now let's hear it yeah um so after you you start getting heavy into the jazz in in college and you're pursuing your degree do you start playing in a bunch of different jazz bands with just other other students that you're going to school with yeah let's see uh there's uh, there's like gigs in college that are I, I would say like just kind of learning the music at that time, um, playing you know real book gigs, playing standards, learning the music, and playing and getting paid to do it, which is cool. That happened during college, and then I came out to Portland after I was at Portland State for just a minute. Um, I started a couple different. Well, I was participating in a couple projects. Um, and then um, I was actually leading a jam session in St. John's at Proper Eats, and the house band for that jam sort of became my band, and we called it Trio Flux. And at that time, they were getting kind of harassed by like the PROs to like um, stop having music, and so we kind of switched the format to all originals. Um, would like we own our own music, we can play it whenever we want. Yeah. And then I started writing tunes to like be able to play every week, <laughs> and re re kind of f- you know digging up old tunes from the past few years. And then that band be- became did I mention it was called Trio Flux? We did like we started record those tunes, and then we started playing lots of gigs, and it was a very cool band. Uh, with uh, Julio Appling, who was in the student loan until they stopped. That's a bluegrass band. And he also plays with Will West a lot now. Okay. Now. And um, and then our drummer, his name was Adam Oxhorn, and he actually passed away uh, after, like, 
he was on a hiking trip up in uh, Mount Colchuck in Washington, um, and he had he kind of had an accident and come back, and so that, so that was kind of the end of that group. Um, and someday maybe we'll do like a tribute to Adam, I think, because he wrote a lot of tunes yeah. for the band that we didn't put on record. So we do have a record on Spotify called uh, Mobius, which is I'm really proud of. It's now about six years old. So, you know, time changes. Um, but, you know, we put a lot a lot of heart into that record, and it's this document of that phase of my uh, guitar playing. And, uh, you know, it's, a, it's very rock-influenced. It's instrumental, but it's... You know, there's a lot, you know, we played guitar through the Leslie. We had, like, you know, Rhodes on that record, um, a lot of crazy drums. I had Mary Flower play on it, um, a bunch of guest musicians. So it was a trio record, but we had, like, guest musicians yeah. on every, every track. Um, yeah, do you, do you're talking about how, like, there's, like, a lot of, like, rock influence on, on that? Oh, yeah. Do you, is that just a kind of a carryover of, all that classic rock that kind of that you grew up listening to and loving before hitting the the jazz stride for sure um and you know i think um just kind of finding my roots in what music i grew up with um and like led zeppelin and just big influences you know other uh, blues artists like muddy waters and um, buddy guy, um, lots of influences that were, are just in there. You can't really, you know, yeah, you can't take them out. And then, um, the instrumental part, so there's solos, but it's, it's really a, a orchestrated record. It's not, it's not really, a lot of improv. Yeah. Um, I mean, there is, there's solos, but they fit into the arrangement. Okay. So it's, as much as it is a jazz record, it's 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 really kind of not a jazz record. <laughs> um, it, you know, it's very arranged how we, you know, we would orchestrate the songs and they would kind of go through a narrative and and end up on the other end of the thing. Yeah, and you mentioned having a bunch of different players come in and and play on that record, and I think that's another thing that I love about the. The jazz world, man, is it like just seems like very collaborative and just open to having as as many cool players come in on and play on something if it fits, you know. Mm -hmm. and I, I don't know. I just I always appreciate that, and especially since I'm still just scratching the surface on yeah. older records to kind of go back and just see these records and you see that that everybody played on everybody's records. All these all these different people oh, that yeah. I find is like. Oh man, Freddie Hubbard played on all these crazy records, mm -hmm. and yeah, it's uh, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. I like that a lot. It's something I love about about hip hop too, and and it's it's also like a very collaborative thing, and mm -hmm. not like always willing to just yeah, let's have this other player come in and and crush it on the record. And I've, I think it, I don't know, it happens in the rock world, but it doesn't seem to happen as much. It doesn't yeah. seem, or maybe it just goes. A little off the radar and it's, you know it's maybe just it's written in the credits somewhere but no one ever says anything but it's not like hey we had this other killer singer songwriter play on our jam it doesn't mm -hmm. happen it doesn't seem to happen as often maybe right yeah 
you know, Miles did with his bands. He, I think, you know, having the band handpick everybody in the band and then like rehearsing them and playing, just keeping that group together and developing that sound. And like, I mean, I think that's that's more like rock and roll than than what ends up happening. You know, in a lot of ways nowadays, is everybody sort of a freelancer. So you get called to do this gig, and if you're not available, somebody else plays the gig. Yeah. And then, you know, who's on bass tonight? I don't know. Right. But I think that's the thing that I think jazz musicians um, appreciate about, like, what can be done when a core group of musicians stick together and work on the thing. Right. Um, I think that that, that that's why um, we love bands that are so great and so deeply connected. And that's something that like, you know, that, that jazz doesn't sometimes offer because, you know, these are just passing moments of, you know, who was in the room that yeah, day. Yeah, who played with them then? Yeah, yeah. That, that's, that is a very interesting thing of, uh, I don't know, I got to see Herbie Hancock last year for the first time. Oh, yeah. And, uh yeah, just a- anybody in the jazz world that I would talk to about it, they'd just be like, who played with them, though, that night? And it's just like, oh, yeah, this is always just a rotating it could be anybody. cast of people. But jazz musicians know what what rock musicians know, which is that like, if you can get musicians together and play the same music a lot and work on it and work on it, you can get to that transcendent level of like, we're all on the same wavelength. Um, and that can happen on a random gig night where there's a, you know, who's here tonight, you know, because of the skill level and the listening ability of certain musicians, it, that magic could happen just on the random, or that could yeah. be a different kind of magic because you don't have the baggage. Yeah. <laughs> but the band thing, you know, like I, you know, I think musicians, jazz musicians appreciate what, what can be accomplished in that, um, in that relationship mode of like developing over years and years and years, like the Decemberists, I mean, it's just deep. The level, like you know, right? Yeah, um, it's that can't replace time thing. Yeah. Um, but on the flip side of like seeing some of the the local jazz bands that I like or, or friends of mine, maybe maybe somebody like Chris Frank who I've seen his band play a few times. Yeah, it's also kind of like. It's sometimes it's cool if I see a different player with them some nights Changes because then it. there's the whole it's like oh we're gonna hear this dude's take on on yeah. on the track now or like yeah. these songs so that's yeah I think the flip side of it is that there's a freshness to it sometimes when there's right and I I just love that that whole mentality too because I think with a lot of rock and roll bands for the most part, unless you're just a role player in that band or like a stage presence, if, if somebody can't do that gig, your band usually doesn't take the gig, you know, where like with the jazz thing, it's like, yeah, we're doing this gig. So, um, I'm just gonna, you know, I have the roster of other folks who can play and there's a list. (laughs) Yeah. There's like levels to that list and everything. I kind of love that too. Yeah. It, it, I think it's cool. And I think more jazz musicians are just realizing that you can play more sometimes by taking like a touring gig with a rock band. And like, there's a lot of opportunities to play. If you, you kind of come down a little bit and go, uh, I don't mean that in the way that it sounds, but, um, if you, uh, just kind of open your mind to other stuff that's going on, yeah. there's like, you can, you, there's so much stuff you can do and there's a lot of opportunities, but not every club wants to have jazz. 
and that's, right. that's okay. That's 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 fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so there's a lot of, I mean, a lot of bands that are changing their format and their approach. Like the Blue Cranes is a great example of a group of uh, jazz musicians who who are trying to build that kind of band vibe. Yeah. And we've booked them like two festivals. Um, I'm sure they'll play again someday. Um, same thing with uh, with with my friend Noah Bernstein and his groups that he's had. Like just trying to find uh, new audiences by you know pulling in different elements, whether it's like looping or um, like you know they they just did like this textural thing with saxophones going through pedals and all this yeah. stuff and and you know like that will appeal to more people and that's just just listening and thinking about what the rock musicians are doing for sure that's like that 1939 ensemble shit yeah yeah where they're yeah. just like blasting all these these instruments through crazy pedals that you wouldn't think of yep. like putting through a pedal yep and jose and then jose uh Medellas is great great band um, yeah, 1939 ensemble. Those guys are great. Dave. Um, yeah. Like, and, uh, I don't know. Are you familiar with bad, bad, not good? Oh, wait, I, I don't know. They're, no. um, they're very cool. Um, definitely jazz heavy, but also, um, they, the cool thing that they've done is like the first record they made was an instrumental and, maybe had some hip hop vibes to it. And then the next record they made, they were the, it was bad, bad, not good. And Ghostface kill us. So they were the, they were the band for him mm. and his rap project. And then they just started doing all these other collaborations. So they've just become like almost producers mm. as a band. So they're just doing all these crazy. Yeah, I think that's really yeah, cool. I love it. And uh, yeah, that's that, that just means that people kind of build trust. Like, they, they're working really hard to um, to always bring something new and fresh to the audience, and you start to build that trust that, like, yeah, I just want to know what they're up to. Yeah, and you know that it's probably not going to be anything like maybe the, the thing you heard before, too, because mm -hmm. this, like, first and second record are so different from each other, and, and then, I don't know, I think you get, like, this sense, and um, you get stoked to see where the ceiling is for them. Right. As yeah, well. that's cool. Um, so how do you, uh, when do you start teaching? You mean like every day? Like what time of day? Like what, um, <laughs> like when, when in your, in your music journey? Oh, I see. You know, like when you got to Portland, were you already teaching? Uh, yeah. Um, I was teaching in a guitar store in, um, Taylor, Michigan, I think. Um, there's all these little suburbs of Detroit. Yeah. Um, in Taylor, yeah. Um, while I was in school, um, and that was just kind of like a thing that I could do to make money that wasn't washing dishes um, and or painting houses, which is the things that I did previously to that. Um, and I was, you know, a pretty, pretty bad teacher because I'd never done it. So, you know, I had the information, but I didn't know how to really talk, communicate and whatnot. Deal with the kids and the <laughs> parents. It was very new. But I had good intentions. Um, and I think most teachers understand what I'm saying. Like, you know, music teachers, you get into it and you're just like, 
wow. I mean, unless you go and get a music ed degree, but even if you get a music ed degree, are you going to have the practical experience of these situations that happen? So, you know, during college and then moving out here, and then that was the work that was available, teaching lessons, and I grew that up, and then I got sick of kind of doing the traveling to each student's house. So I made a decision that I was going to stop doing that and take a little financial hit and try to build up my own lesson practice at my house. Built that up. Took about a year or two. One of my clients um, said, hey, I've got this space you should you could rent. We could build it out and you could have a studio instead of teaching out of your living room or your dining room is what it was. And I said, that's a crazy idea. I can't imagine ever doing that. Thank you very much. No thanks. And then I just kind of sat in my brain for like four months. And I was like, and I started working it out. And I figured out that um, it just was too cool of an idea. Yeah. (laughs) Also, I got up to where I was teaching like 40 lessons a week. And I was realizing that I could not do that in my house. And it was impacting, you know, my partner and I and our, our, you know, ability to like live in a house. Right. It was like, right. there's 40 cars coming every week to our driveway. And, For and, and sure. It was a little too much. There's people roaming through the house all the time. Yeah. We had a good setup, but it, it you know, a little long hallway, a little bench, um, and a crazy cat that bit people. <laughs> um, and then the cat went behind the gate and then we, you know, and then, so I went back to the guy and I said, I think I want to do this. What does it look like? And he said, just draw me a plan of how you want to do the space. And I said, maybe I should hire an architect. He said, fine. And I did that. And then um, Monteville Guitar Studio was born. It took about a year to build it out. It was probably, you know, eight months too long, but... That's just what happened. There's a little, yeah. couple little hiccups along the way. For sure. It, it took from January to July, so that's not a year. It's about seven months. But you had all this, all these students already. I had a yeah. I had forty students. So that, so then it was just me in the yeah. studio, and then over the last three years, we've figured out the business model is to support other teachers. So we built this studio that has many rooms. Okay. So the idea was in order to do in order to get this space we would need to have it needed to be more than just me and so you know i designed the space to support to have more than one lesson you know four lesson rooms and then it just has been a a journey in like business ownership and you know business management marketing and all these things that i never don't really relate to music but they're skills that are like uh really valuable and uh, exciting to get to figure out along the way. Yeah. Um, no, I just think that's cool that you were kind of ba- able to build out that roster of students before taking that leap of having the space. It's almost it's almost like opening the food truck and then getting enough business where you're like, yeah. all right, now I'll open the brick the and mortar because we have the and you we need- have the people to roll through. Yeah, and I needed to to get lucky with this opportunity Uh, and without that opportunity um i wouldn't have had you know i wouldn't i didn't have necessarily the capital to just like find a space you know call some number and say i want to rent this space and, and you know i didn't have that so what happened was 
you know, we were able to, it was just like, there's this room that was otherwise unused. And it was like, hey, I've got this space. And I said, okay, let's do it. And then, you know, not at first, but eventually it was like, let's do this. And then, it, and, but I had to, you know, really um, figure out a lot of things in terms of a, a kind of designing a business model that it will pay the bills. Right. And, I mean, it's not, it's not easy. It's a lot of work. And we're still figuring that out. Um, as the business grows, it's still a challenge to figure out how to, you know, be successful in that business. It's, it's not easy. Yeah. <laughs> and and from starting out teaching and kind of feeling like a bad teacher and not having any experience in it, <laughs> w- was there a moment for you where you realized that you really loved it? Because I can't imagine that you open something like this, this lesson house and have involvement in the community without a deep love for for teaching and just wanting to like kind of pass that gift of music to somebody else or that escape or whatever so it was i don't know did you have a moment like that where you really knew that you were committed to doing this it's a good question um i will tell you that um you know we you know i had a music degree and um, experience teaching and, um, you know, I don't think, I just want to be honest about this. Like, I don't think the love of teaching starts the day you teach your first lesson. It's just like you have a job. The first days are going to suck because you don't know what you're doing. Right. Um, So I think that love of teaching, which I, I feel it really strongly right now, it's like a place where I like when I'm doing like management stuff and festival organizing, and then I get to go into a lesson and be in what, you know, be a good teacher, which is where I'm at now or where I feel I'm at. That feels really good. And I love it. But I, I think that that grows over time. And I don't, um, I mean, definitely love music the whole time. Definitely probably had, um, I have more great lessons now than I did like five years ago and 10 years ago and 15 years ago. Because I've been doing it for a long time, and and so I don't know that it started with this huge love of music. I mean, sorry, huge love of teaching. It started with a huge love of music, but you know, the teaching was. It takes you. You know, it's hard, um, and you have a lot of. Um, uh, it, you know, it's just something to pay the bills at first, really, and then. Um, but I've had a lot of opportunity to to kind of, I've taken some, you know, I've taken music with children classes. I've taken some like, um, like seminar trainings and every opportunity to, you know, learn about like an approach to teaching that can benefit kids and adults. Um, and so being really good at it or being, I guess, good at it now, I think there's more vibes about it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, we, like we had rock camps this last, five four weeks out of the last five weeks and there's a lot of great moments there's moments where you're you're like how do we connect with this kid to give them the space the door to walk through without like pushing them through the door uh, yeah or without like you know telling them what to do and so there's a lot of magic in teaching where if you can kind of believe in the kid like you might they they can't do the thing 
They can't do that drum fill on, and hit that on two right now. You got to believe that they will be able to do it because they don't believe they can do it. So I, there's a there's a lot of good feels around uh, teaching and and seeing kids like achieve something and getting better at it to where you can set it up right. You see, there's an opportunity. This kid's just going to take a step up but you're not going to force them or like cram the information yeah. down their throat, but they're going to kind of experience themselves and take a step up. And then it just feels amazing because they feel amazing. And yeah. so it's pretty joyful. Uh, no, I love that idea of that whole is kind of showing them the door and letting them walk through it on their own and yeah. getting them to that point. And I think it's fun to just watch anybody get better at something too. I mean, that's, you and I play hockey together and that's yeah. <laughs> and because we do play I don't know I guess in the entry level league of like rec hockey you see a lot we, of growth we, right yeah especially somebody like Chris Frank this dude didn't never played hockey in his life yeah just started playing and and, and it's so fun for like to see game to game this this dude is just getting better and better and he and he's you know that you start fun, seeing him yeah. on the score sheet a lot and, and oh, it's yeah. like dude you've you never even thought about playing hockey for 30 years of your life, and now here you are, you know. That's why people are, you know, coaching is fun, and uh, someday I think I, I would be really interested in coaching kids, whether it's, like, hockey or something. We're in a tag team, some, dude. There's some opportunities to do that in Portland, which are really cool. Um, I think I have to get through the next few years of all this busyness to, to find something like that on my horizon. But, like, yeah, and, and being in the rec league is fun because – you know, it is it is like that. Like you just like, you know, I love like passing the puck to somebody, and then they get the chance to like slam it in the net. Yeah, and it's really fun. Or um, you know, but rec league is pretty cool to see somebody get their first goal or something yeah. like that. It's so great. Yeah, right. And and the and the pine cones. It's a cool team. It's man. fun, man. It's it's that great. A fun it's a team. You know, to have like a bunch I, I mean 50% of our team is is Portland musicians at least. Really? I think. Yeah, we have a lot of like musicians that's on the so team. Cool. That's kind of how it started, so. Yeah, that's rad. Um yeah, they I'm playing in the fall, that's for sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> you sure are cuz we're going to play defense together. I'm finally skate out and I get to Sweet. send the puck to you, but uh yeah. uh when did you how did the Montevilla Jazz Festival start? Are you a, are you a part of the the beginnings of this this thing? Well, I think um, I got I was a part of the first festival, and that's um, where that's the neighborhood where your guitar shop is. Yeah, or your, your, where I live, where you do the lessons out of. Yeah, Montevilla is like tucked behind or east of Mount Tabor. Um, it's kind of a big neighborhood geographically, and. Uh, in 2014 so so the the idea from the fest for the festival came from fritz hirsch and aaron Heyman, and i think that they had an idea several years before to do like what if we had an, a fest, jazz festival in our neighborhood of like the most like avant-garde stuff because that's what they were into and so they had the idea and then Ryan, who you'll be talking to, Ryan Marr, um, who's a jazz musician from 
California, who spent a lot of time in New York, who's super active in Portland scene as a musician, as an organizer, uh, programs, Montevilla Jazz Festival, works with the Portland Jazz Composers Ensemble. Um, he, I think, was the catalyst. He was sort of like the this will happen guy. So when, however it happened that Ryan met Fritz and Aaron and they connected and said, let's have this festival, um, then one of them, maybe Fritz, maybe Ryan, were like, hey, we should talk to Neil because he's got this band, Trio Flux, and he lives in the neighborhood. And then they talked to me and I was like, well, you know, we got to figure this out if you guys really want to do this because it's like three months away. Like, what <laughs> what are we doing? And like... Um, and then the first one happened, and uh, Blue Cranes were on that. Dave Friesen, Alan Jones, um, Daryl Grant. A lot of the same cast of musicians, because it's a pretty tight-knit community in Portland of Portland-based jazz musicians, have played like periodically through the last six years. So it started through that, and then after that first year, we kind of scratched our heads and said, this was kind of cool, we could do it again. Um, some folks, you know, have told me that, you know, that we were always going to do it forever or whatever. <laughs> I was like, I don't think I knew that we were going to do it twice. We <laughs> did it the first time. And then, but after the first one, we were like, yeah, let's do it again. And then it just kind of kept rolling along until we, we formed the nonprofit, um, after year, um, right in the middle of planning year, uh, 40, 50, so year four, we formed a nonprofit that helped us to get, um, you know, more d- different revenue streams for funding and grants and stuff. And then now we're in year six and we're trying to work on uh, finding ways to um, kind of bring more value to the community and do some education programming and um, kind of stabilize the, the business side and get more, um, more help through like staffing in different areas that we need help in and yeah. it's just a growing kind of enterprise what is uh what is your role in in organizing the festival at this point so i i take a lead leadership role in um sort of strategy in finance in in the business side and then in overall just guiding the festival organization um and so as the as the ED executive director, you know, I kind of the ultimate have the responsibility and the accountability to make sure everything happens. And if it doesn't happen, it kind of means that yeah. I'm not doing my job. These are all kind of things that you've learned through opening this business too? A little bit. And, and that, that helps. But the biggest lesson for um, this area of work is just to um, work on... Um, you know, finding good people and um, giving them things to do, which is not always easy. Um, and, you know, it's a community event. We have all these volunteers, all these uh, people who like what we're doing and just finding um, how to um, share that, um, that spirit with everybody and, and get everybody involved. Right on. Yeah. Um Has it been something that's just kind of grown year after year and seen seen bigger turnouts to this thing? Yeah, we definitely felt like last year was the biggest, the, the just the vibe, the energy, and sort of 
you're looking around like, wow, that's really busy compared to previous years because we've been in the same space for four of the previous five years. Um, and so the trick is that we have, um, it's, it's not like everybody in the festival has a ticket necessarily. So like we have so many volunteers and then we have sponsors that show up and we have artists who stay and listen. So right. we don't have like a really like pinpoint data point on, on like attendance other than tickets sold and right. tickets tickets sold every year goes up um but last year just felt really like kind of flush and we're hoping this year is similar um we've made some improvements to some of the ticketing model like we have two types of ticket you can get a vip or a general admission and you can get a day pass for five shows and then you can buy a, a ticket to the headliner that way we get the headliner and, you know, we can sell out that headliner show. We just sell that many seats for the headliner shows. And we can do the sort of um, day, pla- day pass, come and go as you will kind of vibe for like the four, or sorry, the five acts previous to the, the headliner. Um, we feel like that's simpler. Last year we had like reserve seats and general admission for each show, and it got a little convoluted. Um, people were upset if there's some. There was a reserve seat that was just sitting there, and they were sitting back a few rows. Right. You know, so one thing we do is we learn every year. We try to like make it a little better, figure it out better. Yeah. Um, implement. Yeah, I don't know if people realize like the amount of planning it takes to put on a festival exactly. like that. You know, because <laughs> they 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 just show up for those two to four days and. Like, um, just got to remind people that it's like an all-year thing of, of pretty much trying to figure this thing out. Yeah, and and although customer experience is really important, like that's business right there. Like figuring out, like down to the little things, and we try to gather the feedback. Um, we certainly can't make everybody happy, but I think um, the folks that are there, the real there's these big comfy like kind of airline seats. Um, actually not like airline seats but they're you know big comfy chairs in the theater you can just kick back and enjoy like hour after hour after hour of like really um, exceptional jazz uh, for two straight days and there's beer and wine and food Um, there's students playing in the student stage Um, just don't save your seat (laughs) that's the that's the one rule and I'm sure everybody in the all the businesses in the Montevilla area are super stoked that you're, yeah. you're bringing this thing to their neighborhood every year because there's so many cool neighborhoods in this city that some I feel like I go a little undiscovered. Yeah, you know, and that Montevilla neighborhood to me has always I don't know stood out just because it's this cool little cool little, little part of the, the it's town a village. You know? really. Yeah, absolutely. It's like a little town, and. Uh, um, yeah, I think that the benefit for the businesses is that we, it's really is, it's name recognition. Um, it's folks who kind of go, you know, it's like feeling a pride that there's a, um, you know, that there's something like a cultural event in their community that they can partake in. Um, and, you know, the, it's, it comes and goes really fast, but we're year round, like talking to neighbors and, engaging in the community talking to sponsors checking in with them and then working in the schools so there's there's a lot going on um but yeah i think that people in general we've really built up a good 
reputation. Um, and we hope that it continues this year and that people really enjoy it. See Mel Brown twice. Yeah, Mel know. Brown's like it, he's he's the legend of, yep. of the the Portland jazz scene. Yeah, yeah, like uh, he is. You know, you trace back the history of jazz in Portland, and he's he kind of grew up in the in the golden era, and um, and then he went off to become a Motown session yeah and touring musician, and then he came back to revitalize jazz in Portland in the eighties. And, and kind of had a part in all of the different clubs that were happening at that time, like the, the Hobbit and the, um, uh, what's it called, the um, Jazz to Opus and some of the other clubs. And then, you know, even the Cathedral Park Jazz Fest started, um, you know, about a decade later after the, you know, after that kind of phase of revitalization came, happened in the jazz scene, all these different things. And it kind of, all goes back to Mel and a few other folks like Gordon Lee and um, David Friesen, um, musicians that have been here. Like you know, they could be anywhere, but they're here. You know, they could yeah. they could go anywhere they want. Um, and that's kind of what we try to highlight in Montevilla. Dave Friesen's played at our festival like four, three or four times, um, and uh, you know, so we want to show that like Portland has a jazz history and Portland has a really thriving jazz community and this is the stage where we try to bring all those folks together or at least each year a different sort of you know showcase of Portland jazz yeah man well, I'm excited to check it out yeah we hope to this see you there my my first first time attending yeah the jazz fest so yeah front row seats right <laughs> Get there early. VIP um, yeah is there any, I mean I'm gonna make sure that all of the links and stuff are included in the episode notes so people can, you know, just click the link to find ticketed information. But is there any anything you want to verbally let people know before uh, before we sign off oh, on no. this thing? Um, no, it's great. Um, I hope we didn't go too, too long. No, you know? no, no. No, these things tend to go this long sometimes and sometimes even longer. So I, I appreciate you, uh, your time. And, oh and yeah! Because I'm sure you it's have super fun. I'm sure you have shit to do. I'm sure you have festivals to organize still. And I'm going to go uh, home and make cat food. Oh wow, that sounds great. Uh, but for real, man, it's uh, it's it's been a pleasure like playing hockey with you this last year or so. Yeah, I mean that was our introduction. Yeah, to each other and so great. It's, it's a lot of fun and, and it's, it's fun playing defense. You're an amazing goalie. Thanks, I mean, man. Those, <laughs> some of those glove saves. <laughs> out of out of control i do what i can you know the moose is loose sometimes and uh super fun playing d though on that team and i hope that we continue to do that for a we're gonna time. beat the russians this year i'll tell you what yeah I'll tell you what but um yeah it's cool because i know i don't know just brief little chats about music here and there throughout the locker room so it's cool to to just get to sit down and like learn yeah. where you come from from the music world and yeah and, and all that stuff man like i uh I appreciate what you're, you know, doing for the the community and whatnot. And I'm also, I just love people that are kind of doing their own thing. And I, I love that you took that leap to open, open the doors on your your school and whatnot. Man, that's that's so rad. So it's cool to see that you've built it into a sustainable thing along with the festival. Like six years doing a an independent festival, I think is something to be super proud about. So I'm stoked to like talk to Ryan a little bit more about 
the fest in the future and we're going to keep featuring oh, yeah. these artists throughout the next couple of weeks that are uh that are playing the fest and whatnot so yeah thanks so much man it's been great um we end every episode of the podcast with the guest saying the tagline for the show which is it's a program it's so, a program yeah i mean you nailed it you did it you can do it again if you want so we can get a clean one it's a program there it is that's Neil. He nailed it. He's a great hockey player. He's <laughs> he's an amazing teacher. He's putting on festivals. All around great guy. Uh, we're playing it out with... Uh, we, we kicked the episode off with the, the legendary Mel Brown and the uh, B3 Oregon um, group. And we're going to play it out with another artist playing the, uh, playing the, the festival. I've, I think Carrie, Carrie Pollitzer... Carrie Pollitzer is playing on on the Saturday, I believe, the first day. Do you know that to be true? Carrie is, is opening the festival. Awesome. It's going to be a super energetic uh, set with uh, featuring a lot of amazing musicians, including her husband on drums, George Colligan, who's also playing later in the festival on Sunday, and then uh, Dan Balmer on guitar, um, Joe Manis on saxophone, and I believe... Um, I can't. I, I think it's Phil Baker on bass, and then Carrie Pollitzer on Carrie piano. And she on will also sing. And if you haven't heard Bossa Nova in this way, it's um, it's sort of like the, it's like a crossing into bebop and Bossa Nova. So it's pretty cool stuff. Right on. Well, we're gonna we're gonna play it out with the track off of uh, Carrie's 2014 record called Below the Surface, and. Uh, so this might be a little bit different than uh, than the style of jazz that uh, goes down at the festival for for her. But uh, this is a jam called If You Knew, and that's the Jelly Jams, everybody. We will catch you on the flip side, Portland.
It's a program.